this one time at Code Camp, I... Right. <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever have issues crop up in production that you don't see in development? Do you even know how your app is performing in production? Performance, errors, and analytics to figure out where your app is bogging down are important to keep an eye on. You could try one of those error tracking apps, but why not use a tool that does it all? Try Datadog. Datadog tracks performance, collects data on your errors, and provides you with the information you need to improve your user's experience and fix bugs without having to log into the production server and dig through the logs. What if my app spans across multiple servers and services, you ask? Datadog seamlessly collects metrics from every corner of your application, including services like Amazon AWS and systems like Redis. So whether you want a clear view into your application's performance, need to be notified of new errors, or to keep track of your application across various services you use, use Datadog. If you go to devchat.tv Datadog and start a free trial, they'll send you a free Datadog t-shirt. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Dave Kimura. Hey, everybody. Eric Berry. Hey there. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and uh, this week we're going to tell some developer horror stories. Now, I think, Eric, you recommended this one. I'm guessing you have some colossal one that you want to tell. <laughs> well, actually, one today. <laughs> so right. that's kind of why I thought about this. So when they hand you your pink slip next week, I'm just kidding. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, all right. So let me paint you a picture. Okay. Eric Berry sitting down at his desk, 7.30 in the morning, pulling the production database down to his local server. Oh, dear. Because he needs to run some tests on that, uh, some reports on live data. All of a sudden, he starts his Mert process, which kicks off all of his jobs, and starts sending text messages to hundreds of people that shouldn't have been receiving text messages. <laughs> <Whoops>. Crap! <laughs> So I'm watching my I'm watching my sidekick just spin up and it's just cranking. I'm like, what's going on? I look over there. I'm like, uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I quickly delete it and like, Shh, hope nobody finds out. Although I just announced it on a podcast. <laughs> my bad. Yeah, good times. I think this is a, this is gonna be a fun show where we expose how even seasoned developers are also um, also not. Not as <laughs> everybody makes mistakes. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think maybe a cool addition to this episode would also be kind of like just take a quick couple of minutes to see how that could have been mitigated or avoided. Oh, I can tell you exactly how it could have been avoided. <laughs> <laughs> just don't do that. Would I not commented out about eight lines of code? It would have been avoided completely. Yeah. Why we have it set up is that there is a fail safe in the system. When I do a pull, uh, there's a failsafe that, that you have to override through an environment variable when you run the when the when you run the application locally. You have to override it with an environment variable, which will make it so that it won't truncate these tables. Now, once these tables are truncated, no messages will be sent. Just so you guys understand the context, I work at a company called Scipio, and we do we do. Uh, uh, B2C texting, we're a B2C texting platform that allows uh, customer attention through through text messaging, MMS, voicemail, that kind of stuff. So uh, when I pulled this data down, I, I, I commented out that stuff, not even realizing that if I commented out those and, and kicked up the server, it would start sending messages. Because what I didn't want to do is truncate those tables because I needed real data to be able to generate these reports that I'm working on. 
So there is the first article of wisdom that I can share. Don't comment out code until you know why you're commenting out code. Yeah. So I would also say that uh, if you have something like an email service, because email is also a situation where something like that could happen. You know, let's say if for whatever reason you do need to pull down production code and it has a background job that sends out emails to people and you want to make sure that you're not going to send that out to everybody. Instead of commenting out code, you could also make sure that your development environments are set up to some kind of mail server or gem like letter opener or mail dev to where it's actually never going to truly send out to the real world, but it's all always going to stay in a sandboxed environment. You know, Amazon SES has a sandbox environment for sending out emails where things would stay uh, only internally or it would send out to a whitelist of people. Mm, yeah. Okay. So I have a couple. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so this one time at Code Camp, I uh, <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> so how many developers my... are going to know that joke? <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> how many developers are going to realize that joke? Well, American Pie has been out for a number of years. I think I think they get the reference. Hopefully, I did. So surely other people will. But no. Um, <laughs> I had sitting this, here uh, hanging my head because I've never seen that movie. Oh, <laughs> oh come on! Oh, it's a it's a it's a rite of passage for my generation. Yeah. So I was in a situation where I needed to store images, and these images were only ever like five kilobytes, six kilobytes, nothing um, substantial, and I really didn't want to mess around with a. Uh, storage on the local computer because, you know, I was going to have multiple web servers. I didn't want to mess around with a external storage because I was lazy at the moment. And keep in mind, this was like seven years ago. It was way, way long ago. Um, so I just stored it in the database, you know, converted it over to a base 64, threw it in the database. <laughs> All was good. And it was good. And it worked, worked perfectly fine for many, many years until one day I went in there and saw that this one table was 30 gigabytes. And while that's still not even that large, but for a table with only a couple of columns, you know, it was much, much larger than it should have been. And then being able to extract those out and rewrite them, any any kind of uh, task to undo this mess, um, would be substantial and it would be substantially a long running process because 30 gigabytes is a lot of data to try to parse through and create a new record or whatever for. So, um, I think in hindsight is you don't have to prematurely optimize, but you also don't have to make bad decisions. Mm. So the lesson, the lesson is don't store globs of binary data in your database. <laughs> Yeah, unless if it's actually data. You know, if it's data, that's right. one thing. If it is something that could be stored as a JPEG, then, you know, right. stored as a JPEG. <laughs> In hindsight, though, you didn't have the same tooling as you have now to be able to make that so clean, and especially with Rails 5.1 or 5.2 with active storage. Yeah. Yep. So uh, I'll... Yeah. Oh. 
<laughs> no, go <laughs> on, Chuck. It's your turn. I, I, your turn, Chuck. I have one word. Put your hand on the put your hand on the burner, Chuck. <laughs> I have one word. Time zones. Ah, oh, mm. yeah. And uh, fortunately, this didn't go public, uh, though um, it did result in. Well, maybe I should just back up. So I don't even remember what the feature did. But, you know, we were doing test first development. I was working for a company here in Salt Lake called Public Engines. I think they're still there. If you go to crimereports.com, I did a bunch of the back end work on that. I was working with David Brady at the time, who's a former host on this show. Anyway, I wrote some tests for my feature and went home. And David was working late for like three or four nights in a row. And so he'd come in or he'd stay after about six o'clock and my test would start failing. And so he would fix the test so that it would basically blow up and give this big, awesome error message that said, fix your crap. And uh, so I'd come in in the morning and I'd run the test and, you know, he'd commented out the test, but he'd put this in there. So I'd uncomment the test and take out his message and it would pass. It passed fine. Well, we're UTC minus six, and it was doing a date check. And uh, so when at six o'clock PM mountain time, it would turn over to midnight UTC. And since the database was running in UTC and I was doing my date checks in mountain time, they would fail from 6 PM until midnight. And so (laughs) um, we would have on our CI server and everything else, it would show that the tests weren't passing for a good chunk of the day. And yeah, it just turned out that I had to fix that stupid error. And, and I don't even remember what all I did. I think I brought in some uh, like time cop or uh, something and, and fixed it that way or, uh, you know, set up the time zone in rails or both. But yeah, it's, it's just interesting that, you know, things that you think, you know, you write the test and it passes but, you know, you, you still may be overlooking something that just may change when you're in a different place or a different time. And, you know, so, yeah. So for a quarter of the world, it probably would have been broken part of the time <laughs> if, if it had gone yeah. to production. I tell you what, man, time zones are a pain. They really are. Yeah. And, you know, I work in the time and attendance division at Sage. So we develop time and attendance software. So time zones are a constant uh, pain. But, you know, it's just something you have to deal with. And for tests, absolutely feel your pain. It wasn't until we introduced Time Cop into our specs that we actually got passing tests consistently. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, and it's, I mean, those are just funny errors because, I mean, so errors that are hard to track down, the hardest ones are the ones that only happen sometimes. Yeah. And and the worst ones are the ones that are critical errors that only happen sometimes because it's like, I don't even know what to do to make it break. And in this case, you know, it turned out that, you know, Dave was working late and that's what the issue was. But yeah, he, he kept uh, sending me messages in the test suite for about a week before I figured out, you know, because I'd, I'd just fix it and, you know, it'd pass and so I'd move on and, yeah, it, it, it gets tricky. And I've also had the same kind of thing with, like, uh, geographical stuff also at the same company. You know, I think a lot of people hate the whole time zone system, but I don't think people hate it as much as developers hate it. I think yeah. we have the truest hatred for time zones. <laughs> <laughs> Justified true hatred. 
who works in time and labor management software, you hate it even more. <laughs> oh my <God. laughs> so. Yeah, that would be hard. I remember setting up databases where I forgot to set my time zone on the database and I forgot to set my time zone on the Rails config and yep. and uh, data would just be all over the place. It was it yep. was a nightmare. So now the very first thing I do is just UTC the crap out of everything. Yep. Yeah, Absolutely. UTC and epoch time it. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, yep. So. And then you set everything think, up pointed to the same NTP server so they all stay in sync. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I've run into that issue before. <laughs> so here's Not a question: fun. Have you have you guys run into this? And I ran into this the other day. I, I do contract work uh, for a guy, and he had me kick up. Uh, you know, I, ta- I talked before about. This uh, we have these ten ten remote servers that are handling um, uh, scraping jobs, and and I pushed them eventually to to uh, Zeit now, great great service. Um, but at the time, I was putting them all on Heroku, so I have got these ten servers that are seven dollars each on Heroku. I move them all over to this other service. Three months later, he says, "Hey, what's this charge?" <laughs> like, Oops. Because <laughs> <laughs> I forgot to shut down those servers. I forgot to turn them off. So yeah, that's it's not necessarily a development issue. It's more of a contract development issue, but it's still a, a definite me issue. It's my issue, I suppose. <laughs> so I don't think I've ever done that with um, platforms as a service or anything like that. But I have done that with my Netflix account, where I thought I had unsubscribed at one point, but then didn't. And never mm-hmm. checked my credit card for like ten months, and then, you know, there was always that seven ninety nine charge. So here's here's a very good <laughs> notice. Anybody? So you guys use DigitalOcean, right? DigitalOcean, or have I, you? I do. Yeah, I have. Okay, so DigitalOcean allows you to turn off a server. Now, in my mind, when I turn off a server, I'm not. Paying <laughs> oh, I know where you're going. Because it's this. off, <laughs> right? <laughs> Two months later, I get a bill for one hundred and sixty bucks. And I don't because it's on auto pay. I don't even think about it. Then I see this. You know, I paid 160 bucks to the server that I've been that's been off. I'm like, what the heck? It's off. So I lock in, and it made it very clear. Like, no, you're still paying, buddy. So yep. I realized the value of uh, doing backups and 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 killing servers on there, or you're going to end up paying. Yeah, yeah. Linode and a lot of the other ones do the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, you got to pay for the space, and they reserve your resources for you. So, lessons learned, costly lessons learned. So, yep. uh, I'll tell you the the biggest mistake that I made on a project. This will make some people laugh and some people cry. So, my second developer job um, after I worked with Nate, who actually works with Eric right now, I was I was working at this job, and I'd been there for like two months, and the team lead left, and so they made me the team lead. And uh, we built this. It was Education Lead Gen, which is there. There are about 10 million companies here in Utah that do this. And so uh, what they were doing is they were managing affiliate links and things like that. And, you know, tracking pixels and all that fun stuff. And they needed a system that would manage all of it on the back end and keep track of where the money was coming from and where it was going and uh, keep track of all the leads and keep track of all the affiliates and the whole nine yards. Right. And they also wanted it to be able to host multiple um, landing pages and things like that and collect the data from those. And Anyway, so we built the system. We built this huge monorail. Um, and if you're, if you're new to Rails, the, the monorail is basically it's a large, tightly coupled application 
where all of your classes are highly dependent on all of your other classes. And so if you change a bit in, if you change some of the code in Spain, then everybody in San Francisco gets worried about a tsunami. And uh, that's the kind of code we had. And so we went to my boss and we said, I said, look, I said, I keep hearing about this awesome thing called service oriented architecture. And I want to, you know, we're, we're going to redo it because, you know, the maintenance cost on this is just crazy. And so the first big mistake was asking to do a big rewrite, which was, I've, I've never done a big rewrite that actually, you know, was a good idea. So we go in and we rewrite it and we do everything with this service oriented architecture. And we talked, um, as we're sitting here, we just talked about queuing with Kinsey Durham, but, uh, you know. Um, it came out last week, her episode, and it makes sense to pull some of this stuff apart, you know, just to simplify your code and things like that and make sure that the coupling is, is well thought out and that you're following solid principles. But no, we pulled everything out into a service. So we probably had a dozen services and then like this thin shell, uh, <laughs> uh website portion of the application. And that just turned into a different kind of nightmare. And so uh, the, the main <laughs> mistake, my, my boss, when I quit, he looked at me and he, he was just like, we've spent so much money on this app. And I'm like, yeah, and I, le I left for other reasons, but yeah, um, mainly to do with him. But anyway, it was, um, you know, at the same time, it's like, look, um, there, are, there are patterns for the way that you build software and there are reasons why some of these patterns work well in some circumstances and some for others. And if you take any pattern to any extreme, you're eventually going to have pain because it doesn't solve every problem properly. And uh, yeah, so it, it for us, it just became really, really difficult to keep track of where everything was and which services were talking to which other services to get what whichever data they needed. And then how much of it do they cache and how much do they not? And, you know, if we had just had, you know, sort of monorail, you know, where it was, it was kind of a main core of the app. And then had these services out there that had to do specific things or had specific responsibilities that weren't core to the actual application, we would have been way, way, way better off. But instead, no, uh, Smarty Chuck, he had to say, hey, let's, <laughs> you know, let's, let's make everything a service. And then we made everything way too small. Well, so is that like kind of one of those hold my keyboard and watch this kind of things? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that that is a, that is a juggling act that I'd never want to live again. And yeah. and unfortunately, that's a lot of companies have the men have that mentality, especially those that come from a more enterprise level backing, like um, like a Java Java type. Uh, when I, whenever I hear Java, I think SOA mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah, so I got one for you guys. Uh, so here, here's a, a, a cautionary tale of, of, of using a technology too soon. Right. And I'm sure we've all faced <laughs> this, the shiny new object. Um, so, and at the time this, the shiny new object actually was rails back in 2009, I work for a company. I built all of these awesome things because I could in Rails. It was absolutely amazing. And I was so proud of myself. And then I got a much better offer somewhere. I'm like, okay, I got to go. And and I and they realized, like, I built this thing in a technology that nobody can come in and, and take over. 
So they brought me back to help them rebuild it in PHP. Now, in hindsight, doing it in Rails at that time was a bad idea because when you choose a technology, you also got to make sure that you choose a technology that can be that, that supports the bus factor, right? If your developer gets hit by a bus, what's your risk? And mm-hmm. in that case, I, I didn't get hit by a bus. I just hopped on the bus and left. Um, but <laughs> there was there was a high risk for them, and they were man, they weren't too happy. So <laughs> so there there's a good lesson with all these new JavaScript frameworks coming out. Beware. Well, and I think yeah. I think the other thing just to keep in mind with this is that we all have a responsibility to the people we're working for to add value. And if you add value and then leave them with a maintenance nightmare, you're not helping. Yeah. Yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah, even on some of the applications that I build and continue to support, a few of them, uh, they are much smaller. So I will always, you know, kind of run edge on there. Uh, the latest Rails uh, even some of the beta or release candidates. And it's, for the most part, worked out fine. However, something that's like my bread and butter that's bringing in the revenue, I'm not going to just do a bundle update, uh, which I'm totally guilty of doing and not locking down my gem versions um, in some apps. And Been there, it, had that it, bite me. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, it, yeah. It could be a nightmare. So, you know... Having your gem lock, uh, that's good. Your gem file lock, that's good. But that doesn't save you, especially if you know there are shortcomings and some gems not working well on later versions or they've deprecated some kind of functionality that you had to have. You want to make sure that in your gem file as well, you're locking things down. Unless if you just like scratching your head on what the heck's going on and why did this break? What's really oh. fun with that is when you do a bundle update and it updates some dependency like three levels down that's supposed to be compatible with another gem. And then you're trying yeah. to figure out why the JSON gem just, you know, you're getting blow-ups <laughs> all the way down to that. And you didn't actually explicitly include it. And it turns out that, yeah, there was an incompatibility there that just wasn't documented somewhere. Yeah. So yeah. how often do you guys fork gems... And then make the change. You submit the PR, maybe never gets accepted because it's upgrading the version support. So now your your apps out there are sitting and pointing at your version, your GitHub pull or clone of, of somebody else's repo. I do that. I, I do it periodically, but at the same time, I also have a running list that I will uh, watch those gems to see like what they're updating and how often they're updating and kind of, you know, take it on myself to, you know, either check to see if my pull request was accepted and then revert back to uh, the original gem. Because, I mean, in reality, that's almost kind of like, quote, and I hate saying this, it's like free maintenance from other people. But it's probably good not to deviate from it too much. Like if your gem file is like full of your own private repos and stuff, then that's not a good idea. If you're doing that just so, you know, if that gem's ever yanked, uh, that you're not going to lose that functionality in your application, then use a, use a proxy instead. So, um, you know, there's a lot of services out there that instead of pointing to uh, rubygems.org, you can point to your own proxy and that will go and fetch the gems from rubygems.org if uh, the gem is not found on your proxy. 
So there's a lot of good alternatives. Gem in a box is one of them where, you know, I run my own private gem in a box server that will store all of the gems and the gem versions that I'm using. However, if that gem is, you know, in my gem file or if I do a bundle update and I don't have my gem file uh, locked down with the version, then I'll actually go and hit rubygems.org, pull the files down, and then store them in my gem in a box. So any next time I deploy a new application or something, it's going to all read off of my gem in a box server. So that's a hosted server? Yeah, it's a self-hosted. I've never heard of that before. It's a cool, cool. It's a cool service. Uh, I have to admit, yeah. I have almost never done this. <laughs> I have to admit, I have never done it. Sounds awesome. Yeah. Well, no, I mean uh, forking the forking a gem. Oh, I did that yesterday. I did it last night actually. I'm uh, the uh, yeah. I, there's a gem that it, it, the last activity was I think 20 or 30 days ago, but it does not support the latest versions of rails and all that stuff so i've had to fork it upgrade it submit a pr all that stuff yeah i'll, I'll do that i'll fork it submit a pr but if the pr doesn't get accepted yeah I, the other thing to keep in mind though is that a lot of the apps that i've built be it for clients or you know for myself a lot of the time i get it to the point where it works and then i don't touch it for quite a long time and so it you know, that code just runs on the server indefinitely. So even if I delete the repo that it's pointed at for that library, the odds of it actually being deployed again are pretty low unless they hire somebody to come and update it. Hmm. Yeah. Do you hate wasting hours debugging code every week when you should be working on your app? You should check out our new sponsor, Airbrake.io, a full stack error monitoring tool that alerts you to errors in your software, then helps you diagnose and fix them. That means no more wasted time searching log files, and more time writing and shipping great code. Airbrake supports .NET and all major programming languages. Get set up at getairbrake.com CB for a free 30-day trial and the chance to win a $500 Amazon gift card at the end of the month. It's a completely free trial and you'll be shocked by how much time it saves you. Again, that's airbrake.com CB. Again, that's getairbrake.com CB. So I, I guess in, if there is like one little bug or something, you know, if it's a gym dependency, then you're kind of screwed with having to fork it and stuff. But if there's a class like there's this one gem group date and I was having to use it in a scenario on a application, but they happen to name one of the methods the same as a Rails method and it overrode it. And that caused a huge problem because I was, you know, I scratched my head on this for, you know, a couple of days. And it was so annoying because I was trying to use um, a method where I said the beginning of the week, but then offset it to a uh, static day, day of the week. And it wasn't working. And that's because this gem had overwrote, overwrote that beginning of the week method. And it caused it to, they didn't take into account of having a offset or a different starting day of the week. They just assumed Sunday. So it wasn't working. I'm like, why is this not working? It's right here in the Rails documentation. So I ended up having to fork it and um, doing that. But I guess in hindsight, I could have just created my own class or module in the uh, lib folder of the Rails app. And then kind of re-overrode it back to uh, what Rails was doing originally, but hindsight. Hmm. Do you ever have to, uh, have you guys ever had to make patches in your Rails app 
knowing that those patches were coming in a future release. No. So we have we so it's something that I learned from Nate, who's you know my mentor. Um, he had to patch Rails, and it was something that was coming out in five two, I believe. I can't remember, but he actually created a patch, applied it, but every time it ran, it said it. If I remember right, he added a comment. So every time it ran, it says, "If you up, if you upgrade Rails, upgrade me." And so it was a very <laughs> In your face reminder to make sure that we stay in sync. I thought that was pretty cool. Mm -hmm. No, he uh, he actually also added that comment to the gem file behind Rails, right after Rails. Hmm. Uh, That's a he's a smart cookie. Yep. So one time, uh, those back in Rails three before they had the uh, Enum and Active Record where I wanted that functionality because I had a really good use case for it, but it wasn't in Rails 3 yet. So I pulled the libraries from Rails 4, pulled it into my own library, and then just used it in Rails 3. So not really the same thing, but I have done something similar to that. Cool. But that's not really a horror story. That was a cool story. Um, yeah, that's a cool story. But it, wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't my doing. Everything I've shared has been bad, but Nate, Nate's the good guy. <laughs> so I've screwed myself a few times with migrations and not making sure that they're idempotent, which is really scary. You know, you should always be able to just migrate and then roll back without any kind of, hopefully, any kind of issue especially on simple things. But one of those like super annoying things is when you run a migration and you had some pretty sloppy code in the migration file doing some weird things and it fails. And then trying to figure out like at what part did it fail and then how can you kind of revert it back? Because if you just do a rake DB rollback, then it's not going to clean it up back to where mm-hmm. where it was before. So um, taking snapshots of your database before you run migrations can be a lifesaver. I've I've had a similar experience, and usually what get got me in trouble with this, I don't do this anymore. I put my data uh, changes into a uh, into a rake task, but uh, yeah, I would have I would have it you know basically add a column and then calculate what should be in that column, and then move on. And I've had stuff break there. The other thing that I've done though is that I've had the same migration go in. Um, calculate the value of the current thing and then delete the columns that it calculated from because we weren't going to use those anymore and had it actually mess up the calculation and then delete the columns that it was calculating from. And so all of a sudden (laughs) we don't have any way of knowing what's supposed to be in there. And so, you know, we've had to pivot a couple of times because we didn't have the data or, um, you know, we had to pivot for a few customers because the backup didn't have their data. And, uh, yeah, not fun. (laughs) That's a mess. (laughs) (laughs) So, so the moral of the story is, is if you're going to, um, munge data, you know, do any of these calculations and things, um, a, make sure you back up your database before you change the data in any kind of automated way. And the other thing to keep in mind is that, yeah, don't do data modifications in your migrations. Bad. Bad. And, you know, you could also set up a replica 
of your database and then do a dump on that replica without having to lock any kind of tables. Or you can do a MySQL dump uh, in a single transaction and not lock tables and stuff like that as well. So there's really no excuse except for laziness uh, or, or inexperience. Or both. Now you know. I got, I got two words, and I'm going to just say the two words, and I want you guys to share with me the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay? Materialized views. I don't even Meh. know what that means. Meh? I don't know what that means. So, what do you mean by materialized uh, views? Okay, so this is this is kind of synonymous with your uh, you know your uh, your architecture decision that you made earlier on. I used to work for a company, and we had a lot of data coming in. It was a, it was a, it was a social network company that provides uh, analytics and statistics on your social media accounts, allows you to manage that kind of stuff. So. I was in charge of one – well, I was helping build one of these sub-products that they had, which handled all of the in, all of the, uh, the intake of these messages across all of these different networks from Twitter, you know, Instagram, Facebook, that kind of thing. So what we decided to do was use materialized views. Now, a materialized view – is a view that self-updates as data changes in the database. So it's like a regular view, but it is – and, and uh, help, maybe I'm explaining this bad, Dave. Maybe you can help me explain it. Is that is that accurate to say? It's basically just creating a fake table that doesn't, I guess, really exist, that just um, – has a query or sort of procedure or something that displays, you know, like if you have a table of companies and users, and if you want that view to show all of the companies and uh, all the or all the users and then the company name, then you can kind of create a view that has just that information. And it can be really helpful and kind of simplify the application side of things by not having a bunch of like raw SQL or messy code in there because you could just reference this view to get the information. So essentially it's a standing join, I guess. Yeah, they can get really messy. Like the the types of views that we created, they were probably 150 lines long of just raw SQL. And it got so messy. And it got to the point where we had no idea what was updating things when, and and so we had to we had to pull back completely. We ended up converting all of those materialized views to stored procedures, and then being very careful on when we called those. We ended up just killing the database because it was constantly triggering when it shouldn't be. So, for example, if the user record gets touched, it would trigger. If the if this record get touched, it would trigger. But now we have these jobs that are running with, you know, basically every single time we bring in a single record, it would trigger. And we're triggering this thing so much that it was killing our server. And we were hosting our database on Amazon. And, and they're like, dude, your servers are, are burning up. And that was that was a pretty big blunder that we made when we were there and I, i'll yeah. take the majority of the responsibility on that one so <laughs> that reminds me of this horror story that i did and <laughs> it's just so horrible because like i didn't realize what was going on until like a few days later and <laughs> it was so bad so i had this um uh this belongs to you know let's say if you have a student and then a student has many classes so Whenever the uh, student was updated, 
you know, I didn't have any kind of counter caching or anything going on. So the student uh, would then touch all the classes that the uh, like the courses that the student was a part of to update, you know, any kind of fragment caching and stuff like that. But then whenever a course was updated, like, you know, it could have been the course name or something. It touched all the users. So I created this like exponential, like, uh, yeah. and it was all done in uh, uh, async. So it would kick back to Sidekick, <laughs> and then, <laughs> like, in one day there were like over ten million Sidekick jobs processed, <laughs> and they were just climbing and climbing and climbing. I'm like, what the heck is going on here? It was like so bad. So I then like tore apart the code because like the memory was peaking. Sidekick, uh, it doesn't like to release memory very much uh you know so like a lot of quick and small jobs is good but we have like millions and millions and millions uh it yeah you're gonna start hitting some limitations so so if you're one to learn about recursive patterns that's one that you don't want to do <laughs> we did something similar except it was with counter caches and it was i don't remember exactly how it worked out but it was in some way a circular reference and so even though eventually when it came back around, it didn't have to increment the counter cache or whatever other cache that was there, it was still trying to update that row with the data that was already in it. And so, it, yeah, it, it started to slow down the bigger we yeah. got. Hmm. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I, I've I've run into the same issue. Caching is 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 apparently a big problem with with development. Development. It's a hard problem to solve. We use extensive caching where I work right now, and it drives me crazy. It drives me absolutely crazy because it's so complicated in my mind and in Nate's mind. It's like crystal clear, right? It's oh, of course, it's how you do it. But there's now complex cache keys built around different queries and 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 cache keys built around combinations of objects and and so i understand the value but i i i would recommend don't cache too early don't don't make caching a, a part of your initial story because it, it when you run into cache errors there's been tons of times where we run into problems that we don't understand what's going on ended up being because it was caching it was caching the wrong mm -hmm. results and we weren't breaking that cache properly yeah, just on the same note, I mean, I remember uh, working on an app and I got in and, you know, we kind of got all the features done. So I had some time to go clean up the code. So I start cleaning up the code and I start running some of the plugins or plugins, some of the gems that help you track down like N plus one queries and stuff in your Rails. And so I go and I clean all of that stuff up and and then my client starts using the app and it turns out that there are a couple of critical pages that are just running hecka slow, like really, really slow. And, um, you know, I it never occurred to me to actually run a perf test on any of this stuff. And so I'm in there and I'm cleaning up N plus one queries that make it go from uh, 10 milliseconds to 9 milliseconds or something stupid like that and not really realizing <laughs> that there's another place where, you know, just a little bit of investment in time and effort you know, I'm bringing it down from loading the page in two seconds to loading the page in 400 milliseconds. And and that's where I should have been focusing my energy. So, you know, I the moral there is, you know, just measuring and just making sure that you're working on the right problems. And not yeah. doing the premature optimization because it may not matter. 
And and that yeah. I think I think your tale with caching just kind of brings that up too is that you know if you're eliminating n plus one queries the side effects aren't going to be that big but if you're mucking with caching to try and make it go faster and it's not going to have an impact on anyone you may have just complicated something and maybe even messed it up by putting something uh, complex in front of something that was relatively simple and worked fine yeah, yeah. and you know on that same note, uh, when you are testing out your application, uh, you know, if you're browser testing or whatever, populate the database with unrealistic number of records because you will uh, find gaps, you know, in your logic where things are much slower than you thought. And your application will eventually, maybe hopefully, grow to that size where, where you would then experience those issues. What yeah. tools do you use to do that? How, how do you populate your data with unrealistic data your tables so um there's one gem called active record import where you know i'll use a seed file the seed file you know my seed files are usually kind of large as far as um how much uh data there there is in there and it all depends on how big the application is so you know on some of the larger ones i will um use uh, active record import to basically generate uh, 10,000, 20,000 records and then do a bulk import with the active record import. That's cool. And uh, I actually just did some, I'm working on another application right now and I did, you know, using the faker gem to generate like fake names, fake email addresses and stuff like that without using the active record import it would take maybe 15, 20 minutes to run 500,000 records, which was a insane amount of time. With active record import, it took like two. Wow. I've got another That's one. Cool. <laughs> this reminded <laughs> me of another one. And then, oh, this one's a doozy. So I had a project that I worked on for a client, and there were like three or four different access levels for different people for the data. And the way that I managed a lot of that access and the way that I managed what they could modify and validate the data was with validations. And so I used active record validations. If you save it, you know, if this person saves it, then, you know, then, you know, validate this way. And if this person saves it, validate it that way. And, oh man, the data wound up so inconsistent. It was, it was a mess because, and then what happened was, you know, like even the ultra admin who could save anything in any form, basically was still running into issues because um, it wouldn't display properly somewhere else because it didn't have the data it needed. Or, you know, then somebody else would go in and try and, you know, process a refund or something like that. And even though the refund logic wasn't tied up in the, that particular validation, there was something in the address or something else that, you know, that they didn't have the permission to override. And so the refund couldn't be processed because the data wasn't in Anyway, it was <laughs> uh, anyway. So, yeah. So uh, make sure your validations are consistent for everybody. <laughs> and then, um, you know, just just manage things upward from there as far as your per permissions and anything else. And by no means allow anybody to just have uh, blanket access to create or modify uh, data without passing all of the validations and meeting all the expectations in your app. Yeah, <laughs> I could just see that support call go right now. Like, yeah, how can I help you? Like, where's my refund? You guys said you're going to give me a refund. Like, I'm showing yeah. it's here. I'm showing that we gave you a refund. I've talked to four people. 
<laughs> and they all said they were refunding it. Yep. Yeah, yeah that, that was my geez. life for a week. Boy, does that get stressful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but we went into R&D, so we didn't have to talk to people, right? That's right. <laughs> All righty. Well, should we do some picks? Yeah. Yeah, let's do it. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Are you searching for a new job? That can be stressful, scary, and time-consuming. Pushy recruiters try to sell you on roles you don't actually want, and the job boards make you feel like you're throwing your resume into a black hole, never to be seen again. And sometimes you go all the way through the interview process just to find out at the very end that the salary, offer, or company culture doesn't match what you're looking for. Hired is the world's most intelligent talent matching platform for full-time and contract opportunities in engineering development, design, product management, data science, sales, and marketing. We make your job search faster, focused, and stress-free. Instead of endlessly applying to companies and hoping for the best, Hired puts you in control of when and how you connect with compelling new opportunities. After completing one simple application, top employers apply to hire you. And on Hired, you receive personal interview requests and upfront salary information so you can make informed decisions about what opportunities to pursue over a condensed timeline. Hired offers access to more than 4,000 innovative employers, including big brand names like Facebook and smaller emerging startups. The size and type of company you want to connect with is totally up to you. And we help you find new opportunities in 17 major cities in North America, Europe, Asia, and Australia. Open to relocation? Let them know. Your privacy and autonomy in your job search is of utmost importance. And if you sign up today using the show's link, that's hired.com slash rubyrogues, you can get double the normal hiring bonus. That's $600 instead of $300. So go check them out at hired.com slash rubyrogues. All right, Dave, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, so, you know, I think I'm going to just choose the picks that we kind of talked about on the show. Uh, one is Gem in a Box, which is a basically self-hosted proxy that will download and store on your local environment or your local servers uh, any kind of gem files that you're using within your application. So it's as simple as just running the Gem in a Box server on a spare computer that you have and then just pointing your application to this, uh, the sources within your gem file to this Gemini box server. So uh, it's uh, very handy and it can definitely protect you from like those kind of left pad incidences where someone rage quits or yanks a gem. And then the other is active record import. So it saves me a lot of time when I'm seeding files or doing any kind of importing data to where I can build my and construct the data first and then do a bulk import. Saves a lot of time. Awesome. Eric, what are your picks? I was muted. Oh, I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> it's okay, it happens. I got to repeat myself. All right. No. <laughs> so. <laughs> now now, right, now this uh, episode isn't very dry. Ugh. Oh, well. <laughs> wah, wah. I, I had to get a dad joke in somewhere. Sorry. There you go. There you go. Uh, two picks. The first one is Udemy. I'm a huge Udemy fan. I, I, I've been a fan of theirs for a long time. Udemy has some amazing courses, but I want to point out one specific instructor over there named Steven Greider. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. This person is like the Bob Ross of programming. He makes it look simple. He helps you walk through and he's, he's like such a great teacher uh, of, of, and he has courses on React and on Elixir and on uh, all sorts of Redux and stuff like that. And if you're into any of that stuff or want to get into it and maybe aren't ready to hop into a boot camp or something like that, I highly recommend Steven Greider's courses on Udemy, and you can typically get them for 10 bucks. 
it's worth every penny and more. Um, and my second one is Code Sponsor, which is my my company that I'm trying to. Uh, the whole purpose of Code Sponsor is to help connect sponsors with open source developers. So if you have an open source project, if you want help getting funding for it, if you don't know how to go about doing that, that's what we do. We try and we are trying to help sustain open source by connecting uh, connecting sponsors with software developers and software open source projects, uh, codesponsor.io. Awesome. I am completely drawing a blank. I'm going to just pick uh, Audible. I, I tend to listen to books on my run and uh, in the morning. Um, in fact, I'll, I'll go ahead and pick another thing that I use every day as well. But uh, yeah, I've, I've really been enjoying Audible. Uh, that's where I've been listening to the books that I picked on the last show. And uh, the other pick that I have is a meditation app. Um, in fact, if you follow me on Twitter or something, you might have seen me tweet about it because uh, I do a meditation practice every morning. Except for this morning because I completely slept through my alarm. I, I, I woke up like two hours after I was supposed to and I was like, oh. Uh, you were just in a deep meditation, right? That's right. <laughs> that's uh, the extra yeah. deep meditation. And then the last thing is, is uh, you know, yesterday, um, I don't, well, I'll just admit it. So, so yesterday, I've, I've never had a panic attack before until yesterday. And it, it, at least I think it was a panic attack from what I've heard from other people. But um, I was so distraught that I actually couldn't breathe um, and just completely anyway. Um, but just taking a second to, to calm down. Um, in my case, you know, I said a prayer, but, uh, you know, just just taking a minute to kind of get some peace and just just recenter a lot of times is something that's really important. Um, and I don't know that everybody has, you know, well, I know everybody doesn't have the same, you know, spiritual or mental practice to do that. But I, I just can't recommend highly enough that you find something like that uh, to kind of help you figure that stuff out. And it turned out that, you know, the stuff I was freaking out about wasn't that big a deal, but it felt like it at the moment. And, you know, I, like I said, you know, it was my first time and, it, it, people who have that kind of anxiety on a regular basis, I feel really, uh, you know, I can sympathize with them a little bit. And I feel, you know, uh, bad for them. But yeah, I mean, you know, just just finding that, you know, and for me, it's it's rooted a lot in spirituality and the way I practice religion. But, you know, other people find it different ways. And I, I just can't recommend to people highly enough, you know, go out there and just just find that that thing that kind of centers your life or gives you something to hold on to when things are going to get hard because um, I haven't met anyone yet that didn't have things get hard at some point. So anyway, I'm just going to throw that out there. Well said. Uh, all right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap this one up. Uh, thanks you both for coming and sharing your horror stories. That was kind of fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good talk. You got to You got to start right. the intro music this time with like uh, the old scary sounds, you know, the Halloween yeah. sounds. <laughs> That'd be awesome. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to encourage everyone to go check out Ruby Dev Summit. Uh, it's free uh, to attend live. And then if you want the recordings and stuff, you can pay for that. Um, but rubydevsummit.com and then just scroll down and click the sign up button. And uh, we'll catch everyone next week. All right. Talk to you later. Thanks, guys. Take care. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.